This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 41 of the Polar Geopolitics podcast. And on this episode, we're going to dive right into a very fluid situation that is happening as we speak. We're recording this episode at 2 p.m. on Friday afternoon, the 25th of February. That's Central European time, Stockholm time. And on the phone line, I have an expert on the topic of the day, really, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia just a couple of days ago, and uh, someone who also has a quite a bit of expertise on the Arctic and Russia's role in the geopolitics of Eurasia. We have Matthew Buleg, research fellow in the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House, expert on Eurasian security and defense issues, and on Russia's domestic and foreign policy. Matthew, thank you very much for joining us here on short notice for this episode of the Polar Geopolitics podcast. Thanks, Eric. Happy to be here. Great to have you. And I think that's going to be a theme of this podcast for many episodes to come, getting uh, different perspectives and voices on uh, what is going on, trying to make sense of the situation in that part of Eurasia, but also the uh, spillover, since this is, of course, a polar geopolitics podcast, some of the spillover effects of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine into the Arctic and beyond. So, uh, Matthew, um, I think you're a great person to start off this series of discussions with on this uh, very current, very critical topic. The scale and the ferocity of this Russian invasion has really surprised a lot of observers, even even real experts on Russia, just the sheer scale and scope and how, how aggressive it seems like this invasion is. Some people thought that it would be much more limited maybe to the eastern parts of Ukraine, but certainly it's really a full-spectrum invasion at this point. Do you think that we should see Russia in a new light now, maybe some in a very different way than we saw Russia just a few weeks or a few months ago? Now, that's a good question. Listen, the, the, the thing is, we, we, we have consistently failed to see the signs on the wall. We, we have been complacent and have been lacking imagination in even believing that such a thing could happen, that we could already, you know, we could have today war in Europe, that we could have another um, military aggression by Russia against Ukraine. And yet, here we are. Yet, Kiev is being captured as we speak today on Friday, the, the, the 25th of February. So, we, we, we knew that all the signs were on the wall. We've had US declassified uh, intelligence, for instance, since early December, showing the different deployments, showing uh, the, the sort of depth and width of troops and hardware consistently placed strategic points across the borders of, um, of Ukraine, as well as in Belarus, uh, in the in the past few weeks, so this this is m- mostly a form of complacency and lack of imagination to even understand the consequences of it more than you know the possibility of it in the first place. That we have underestimated uh, Putin's willingness to retake Ukraine by force, absolutely. That we have fallen complacent to it, yes, as well. So we we are we are equally guilty in ignoring the situation, I believe. And now we have to pay the consequences of it because the window of opportunity to actually be having a deterrent effect or actually coming up with a united and coherent response to stop this war in Europe is very limited and is closing rapidly. Because what 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 the Kremlin wants unilaterally now is the complete and uncompromising military and political surrender of Ukraine, a complete dismantlement of Ukraine as a sovereign nation, and its complete demilitarization, with the insurance that there will be no NATO, 
and no NATO weapons in the future. So here we are now. Do you think, I mean, of course, this is the million-dollar question at the moment, what the motivations are. You say the complete dismantlement of Ukraine as a sovereign nation. Is that solely, you think, due to security concerns, that the expansion, the potential future expansion of NATO into uh, Ukraine, do you think that is really what is the sole factor motivating uh, Putin and Russia in, in launching this large-scale operation? Or do you think that there's a few nights ago where Putin went on talking about the sort of this historical um, factors that Ukraine wasn't really a real country yeah, ever? Yeah. Do, you, do you think there's some greater thoughts here, some maybe personal motivations on the part of Putin? Or is it solely a, a strict calculation based on Russian security in the near-term future? So I think it's a mix of a little bit of everything, to be honest, because um, the Kremlin leadership, Putin and all the, the cronies around him and his advisors and so on, uh, are evolving in a completely different mental space than we are. They evolve in a parallel universe where they are feeding a lot of fantasies and a lot of self-constructed images about the post-Cold War security order, right? About all this propaganda around NATO expanded its borders without consulting us, quote-unquote, with uh, we have NATO weapons close to our borders, you know, all these fallacies, um, all these perceptions that they have. Also because Ukraine has historically, culturally, religiously even, always had a special place. It is a very sort of emotional attachment um, to, to, to the territory of Ukraine emotional enough that the Kremlin is now ready to launch what is basically a fratricide against uh, against Ukraine. So they, they are they are evolving in this completely different bubble, which makes it really hard to grasp because we, we know either we go to the mental space or we try to tether them back into a form of reality where we can actually speak. And that makes deterrence incredibly hard because you can't deter a worldview. You can't try to, to persuade your your enemy that what they are doing is wrong because they are so entrenched in believing in it. And it's a mix of all of the above. Perceptions of national security, the willingness to create a buffer zone because of said perception of NATO's expansion, because they fundamentally believe in the Kremlin leadership that Ukraine is less sovereign uh, than Russia. They fundamentally believe that Ukraine should not be allowed to have an independent and autonomous foreign policy, let alone to try to get closer to NATO. So all of these are feeding, once again, sort of gut feeling, emotional, irrational statements uh, about history. We've seen Putin write sort of pamphlets. It's completely historically wrong and it's skewed around the place of Ukraine. And this is the form of the sort of propaganda that Ukrainians um, have been um, have been fallen victim of, in a way, and that Russian ordinary citizens have had to swallow for the past 20 years. So once again, a very complicated moment to, to deal with for us and to deter on the long term. Before we get to the specifically Arctic aspects of, of the current situation, Matthew, perhaps can you perhaps give us an idea from, from your perspective, how does Putin see the geopolitical map of Eurasia looking south towards Ukraine, but also looking towards the West and NATO, towards the East and China, and of course the North? So it's it's really about you know geography, of course, um, but it, it is also the understanding um, that Russia is is a form of post-imperial, post-colonial country that has to deal with the loss of its former empire, you know, from this, the very Russian Empire to the Soviets, 
uh, form of hegemony that they now have to deal with. In terms of decolonization, proper decolonization of the, these remainders of territories that have fallen out of Russian mainland and that they have a hard time dealing with in terms of um, understanding this new world. We, we should not uh, underestimate the, the place of, of personal traumas in, in this situation. Putin himself probably and most of the leaders of his generation in Russia have in a way been evolving in this trauma mentality whereby they've seen the end of their own world with the, the end of the Cold War. They, they've seen and they've, they've lived through the unraveling of their, their frames of reference, their frames of existence. And you don't recover from trauma. Actually, you tend to repeat them. So in a way, what we see today, by instead of trying to wage peace, we see a Kremlin that is trying to reproduce what they've been victim of or they believe they've been victim of 30 years ago, this trauma of the end of the Cold War. So this is permeating foreign policy shaping, of course, and this is permeating geography with you know, the perception of expansions of NATO border and the need to create these buffer zones, the, these, these areas where Russia and the Russian territory can breathe because they believe their enemies are coming to get them. Whether it is on the eastern flank with NATO, whether it is with the south with the threat of, well, Islamic terrorism, um, and whether it is in a way, um, with China, the sort of containment strategy, even though Russia is increasing its cooperation with uh, with Beijing. Uh, and and uh, we see it, and I'm sure we'll discuss it in the North today, with the North Pole approaches and Russia's perception um, of you know the NATO threats coming uh, in the high north, but also the US threats coming from the Pacific Arctic. So th this is also something that we are seeing equally in the, um, in, in the Arctic and polar theaters. Oh, very interesting, and, and let's let's get to that then. I mean, there is several, many aspects to to the, all these questions. There is the security, strategic, military aspects in the north, whether it's the uh, the Barents Sea, the North Atlantic, and uh, and Russian uh, the Russian Arctic, but the Arctic, the circumpolar north, let's say. But there's also the politics, right? Political cooperation that's been quite a success story for the past twenty five years or so. Arctic cooperation, which now maybe is going to start unraveling. We shall see about that. It took quite a hit in 2014 after the uh, annexation of Crimea. And now this this must have a pretty significant, if not uh, fatal, impact on uh, Arctic cooperation. Well, perhaps we'll get to that in a second. But since you started mentioning, uh, Matthew, some of the, these, maybe let's say the more military strategic security aspects of the Russian geopolitical geographic outlook on the North, perhaps you can outline that a little bit. From the Russian perspective, how do they see their northern flank, the other countries that are Arctic countries, and some of the various NATO exercises and other things that have been happening in the Arctic in the last few years? Yeah, absolutely. So they, they, a few, few, you know, pointers on the way Russia sees the Arctic uh, in general. The first thing is that it's a strategic continuum. We, we, we tend, you know, across the Arctic Rim to have very different um, geography and and perceptions of what the Arctic really is, right? Between the high north on the one end, uh, the American Arctic, Indian Arctic, completely different in terms of space and geography, with a focus on the other side of the world. Russia has a sort of 360 understanding of it. It is a strategic continuum between the European high north in general, with the Kola Peninsula being the sort of entry point uh, for Russia with the Northern Sea Route, 
to North Pole approaches across the um, the Northern Sea routes and the Arctic zone of the Russian Federation. And then on the other side, in the North Pacific, from the Chukchi Sea to the Bering Sea, with the choke point of the, of, of the Bering Strait, uh, and further down with the whole sort of pre-Arctic environment in Kamchatka and the Sea of, of Akhotsk. So they really have this sort of 360 view of geography that we don't really have in, in, in across the other Arctic nations. Um, so this is the first thing. The second thing is that the Kremlin has now a more militarized approach to Arctic affairs. It is very much about protecting national security against what they perceive to be um, an increased number or an increased presence of NATO and allied forces closer to Russia's border. We fall back into the same logic that we have with Ukraine, for instance, of, of the expansion of NATO capabilities. We, we see it um, as well very acutely in the European high north, but also increasingly um, with this North Pole approaches and the fear of U.S. strategic overflights and strategic bombers, but also in the Pacific Arctic with military activity um, around the Sea of Akhotsk, for instance, with this closure of Akhotsk, which is sort of the gateway to the Russian Arctic uh, in the Pacific. Um, so this perception, sort of militarized perception of the Arctic, is not Arctic-specific. It is replicated and replicable in other theaters, and we see now <laughs> the consequences of it in, in Ukraine and against Ukraine. But this is not a very Arctic-specific understanding. And the final thing is that it, it is a very military strategic outlook that Russia has. On top of being militarized through military expansion and the revamp of military infrastructure and hardware, you, you really have a sort of comprehensive military strategic approach to the Arctic um, in terms of, um, for instance, in the High North more specifically, with the creation of a new military district, uh, the military district North, since January 2021. So you really have the sort of... Um, broad approach in strategic terms that is then applied um, down the road to you know a more operational and tactical approach uh, to the Arctic. So it's, it's, it's a mix of completely Arctic-specific endeavors and understanding and non-Arctic-specific understanding. I mean, these things have kind of happened in parallel, right? The invasion of, uh, or let's say the annexation of Crimea in 2014, and up till now, this this much larger scale operation in, in uh, the rest of Ukraine. Has this happened as two separate? I mean, you, you say that it's one sort of strategic outlook, perhaps looking in different directions geographically, but do, they, do these influence one another? Now that the stakes have gotten so much higher, it seems, in Eurasia, do you think this will have some sort of strategic military security spillover effect in what Russia has been doing in the Arctic, independent of this uh, Ukraine situation for the past five or 10 years. Right. So I, I think this is a this is a critical point and a critical issue to look at, the spillover, what we call basically horizontal escalation. The fear that one area of operation might into another one, another form of geography, where the high north in particular could be uh, could be affected. I'm not going to discuss too much the Pacific Arctic because this is sort of you know on the other side of the world. Although Russia has been increasing its posture there, but the, the the direct and immediate risk that we have is one of horizontal escalation in the high north, more specifically North Atlantic approaches, and then around the Russian Arctic in the uh, in the European Arctic. So there is of course this risk um, specifically. In the day-to-day -day management of Arctic affairs, more specifically on soft security issues, and I'm thinking about freedom of navigation, I'm thinking about uh, search and rescue operations or constabulary operations, and so on, where 
as you know, the Arctic has, has been and is always this place of low tension and sort of exceptionality of the Arctic in those terms, in soft security cooperation, that the, the war at the moment will have uh, probably a very strong impact when it comes to these day-to-day activities and this day-to-day cooperation uh, on soft security. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the risk of wider miscalculation, tactical errors, mistakes being made when we have more military um, military discussions. And I'm thinking, for instance, of the, the upcoming NATO exercise called Response that is still supposed to take place sometime in March. This will be an extremely crucial sort of stress test of restraint from NATO to make sure that as the war continues to unfold in Ukraine, because it will not have stopped uh, by the end of March, um, we will not let the situation escalate because we will be met and matched probably by Russian intentions to keep the narrative of control over the uh, over Russian approaches in the European Arctic, which means that there is also this risk of miscalculation. And then finally, the, the, the immediate impact it will have is on building a sense of collaboration. I'm not using the word trust. I'm not using the word confidence building because at this stage it is not possible. There is no trust to be had. There is no confidence to be to be had either with, with the current Kremlin leadership, which is endangering future discussions on military security in the, in, in the Arctic, things that will affect the wider regulation and wider operation in the high north in the years to come. Um, and, and more specifically, when it comes to even discussions in the Arctic Council, the fact that we have this unique moment when Russia is declaring war in Europe and the Russian Federation is also the chairman of the Arctic Council and the Arctic Coast Guards Forum until May 23, which means that this is a very unique situation that will have a very strong impact in terms of cooperation uh, and, 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 and then to, um, to build any form of, of long-term collaborative endeavor with the Kremlin uh, moving forward. I mean, do you see a risk now? I mean, the Arctic Council, um, by its, uh, its own treaty, does not uh, get involved with military matters, and maybe that's, that's a good thing at this point. But do you see there any risk of being an Arctic arms race that could be a, a potential consequence of this. I mean, Russia has been really becoming much more assertive in the Arctic for a number of years now. But as uh, as recently as 2019, uh, you wrote that the Russian military buildup in the Arctic was defensive in nature, at least for now. Do you, do you see that now as perhaps shifting to a more offensive posturing in the years to come as Russia might see more and more of a hostile security environment uh, exacerbated by this conflict in Ukraine and the Western response? Absolutely. And uh, I, I think this, and the more I see it now, I'm actually sort of doing an update of this 2019 paper. The um, the, the defense offense line seems to have completely fallen and seems to be inc- incredibly blurred as far as I understand it, because um, if, if, if any form of arms race, then the Kremlin has already fallen into it because it fundamentally believes that because of the impact of climate change, there will be more human presence around Russian air and sea approaches in the in the Arctic, all across the board, not just the high north, but North Pole approaches in Pacific Arctic, which means that there will be a new border to defend, which means that naturally there's a new border, there will be more military activity and more military activity from NATO and its allies. So they already are, in a way, falling into this narrative that they need to preempt the situation 
to a sort of pre-established superiority here, show teeth preemptively to show that they cannot be contested. And if you look at the internal narrative, they are, they are sort of feeding this logic that uh, U.S. forces in particular could be trying to contest Russia's interpretation of navigation along the Northern Sea Routes with, you know, the, uh, the Russia using the ice clause of, of UNCLOS, Article 234, basically saying that Russia can close off the Northern Sea Routes as part of Russian uh, navigational rights because of ice coverage. Well, with climate change, this ice coverage will disappear increasingly, or at least be contested. And there is this sort of narrative that, well, since it can be contested, then it will, because, you know, what can happen will happen. And then we will soon have U.S. forces trying to contest the Northern Sea Route, conduct freedom of navigation operations that will try to undermine Russian national security. So they are, in a way, already in this mental space of an arms race. The question for us is, do we want to sort of fall victim to a self-fulfilling prophecy and collapse, in a way, this reality that there is indeed an arms race? So it is a very tough moment and a very tough spot um, for, for for Arctic nations, which from a Russian point of view, if you look at the map, the rest of the Arctic that is not Russian is basically NATO territory, as they would call it. It's NATO members and its allies, Sweden and Finland. Um, so it is very much you know, a question of what do we do next in terms of making sure we keep this spirit of cooperation. We try to uphold low tension in the Arctic as much as possible. But we do not fall complacent of letting Russia believe they can operate undeterred in the region, militarily speaking, because of their re-engagement and because of their rearmament and overall remilitarization. Because of this defense-offense line I was mentioning, I think there is no such line anymore. And what is defensive can be turned into very much an offensive outlook by a click of a button if you look at... Um, at weapon systems, but also in terms of posture, that it's not entirely defensive. And if we believe Russia's rhetoric that what they are doing in Ukraine is a defensive war, um, well, we can, you know, if we if we if you put yourself in the shoes of Ukraine, this is nothing to do with defense. This is a pure military aggression. Do you see any risks to some of the bordering countries to Russia in the Arctic? I mean, Norway, NATO member. Finland, not a NATO member. There's also Svalbard, which Norway has mm. sovereignty over, but there's a significant Russian um, civilian presence, civilian scientific industrial presence, but not military. It's a demilitarized area. Do you see this this conflict in Ukraine having any other border border problems in other places, specifically in the Arctic? So that's a good question. I don't think there would be voluntary or um, purposeful escalation, specifically because Russia is very much looking at Ukraine, and this is about Ukraine. And NATO has made it clear that it would contain the crisis. They would let Ukraine burn if they have to, but they ask for restraint of Russia not to escalate further and to try to contest NATO's borders. I don't think the Kremlin is suicidal enough to try to launch operations against NATO nations or its allies, Sweden, and, and uh, specifically with a sort of Nordic uh, outlook. I don't think this is going to happen. What could happen, however, is once again this risk of miscalculation, accidents and incidents, turning into wider escalation because we do not discuss, communicate anymore. And when we do, we don't understand each other. So this is, for me, the wider risk. 
Now, for the past few years, there's been more and more talk about this new era of strategic uh, competition, great power competition in the Arctic, often seen from a three-way perspective, uh, United States, Russia, and China. Uh, Do you see that as being, let's say, an accurate uh, assessment? I mean, this goes back some years now, but it seems more and more clear that there's a great power competition going on, whether or not that's relevant for the Arctic. That's another question. Do you, do you see that as a proper way to analyze the geopolitics of the Arctic in 2022? So I, I think it's a great way to see it. And it's, it's a sort of multilateral, multi-stakeholder engagement space where you both have a mix of cooperation with, once again, this sort of low-tension environment, where you have the United States and Russia discussing day-to-day management you know, of search and rescue, fishing, of ocean science, and so on, while they are tearing themselves apart on the wider stage when it comes to global competition. Well, you also have the increased place of China, who is a sort of new outlier in the situation, which is making, not really slow, but very rapid inroads in 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 Arctic governance in trying to reshape the way we think Arctic governance and also Antarctic governance. It's a very polar logic. So it is very much about the sort of great power, new forms of competition. Um, it's also a form of geoeconomic competition, but also geotechnological uh, competition with a lot of, um, you know, cold weather, Arctic-enabled uh, systems to, to survive in a very hot environment. So we so have this sort of multifaceted form of cooperation competition evolving at the same time with the presence of the three main you know, players in, in the room, uh, the United States, Russia, and China, as well as the presence of NATO increasingly, with all these questions being asked now at the level of the alliance of what should be NATO's place in, in this ecosystem in the North Atlantic and, and what is north of the North Atlantic? What, how much NATO should there be in the Arctic in the first place? All these questions questions, of course, will be driving the shape of the future of the Arctic in terms of military security uh, cooperation, but also competition. Because the moment we decide to place more NATO in this environment, the Kremlin will use it in terms of rhetoric as a sort of told you so moment, right? That, well, there we go, we have more NATO and therefore we have to defend defend ourselves, which will then be interpreted by China as another moment where we have basically the imposition of the rule, you know, the Western, um, Western alliances and Western uh, rules-based order. So all of this really is shaping the way that we will cooperate on a day-to-day basis um, in the Arctic. And this, this is very much potentially endangering um, the, 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 the very spirit of low tension, the very logic of exceptionality of the Arctic environment when it comes to uh, soft security issues, when it comes to basic you know, access and operation in this environment, but also having a tremendous impact on the livelihoods of local Arctic communities um, as climate change is, is already impacting tremendously their day-to-day life. If on top of that you add big power geostrategic competition, this, this will have a further human cost to the Arctic, something that we should keep you know, the Arctic free from in the first place. But that seems to increasingly become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So there is, I hope, still space and time that we don't turn it into this vicious circle of engagement. But it's up to us now to make sure it doesn't happen. This idea of a low-tension area, the Arctic, and this 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 idea also of uh, Arctic exceptionalism, which you've uh, you've mentioned a couple of times here today, uh, Matthew. 
Do you think that is that is still feasible at this point? Can we ever go back to this low tension anywhere in the world, the Arctic or, or elsewhere, of having a low low tension relationship, especially considering Russia's very dominant position in the Arctic uh, geographically and also all the investments and, and all the, the, the resources they've really put into developing the Arctic for many years. Mm. Do you think it still can be a, an exceptional area where we can put aside Crimea, we can put aside Ukraine, we can put aside all these other things and kind of get along and have sustainable development and environmental monitoring and, and those sort of soft soft issues, uh, cooperation of those soft issues? Or is it inevitable that this will spill over into that relationship as well? Right. So I, I honestly still want to believe it will remain an area of attention. It's just that the future is looking, you know, a little bit darker and, and, and grimmer every day as it goes. Until before 2022 uh, and, you know, until the very last days of 21, I would have told you, yes, there was still a possibility that we would be able to sort of encapsulate or keep encapsulating the Arctic into this this bubble. Maybe it's wishful thinking, but at least this bubble of low tension. Now that we have a completely different situation um, regarding Russia and against Ukraine now, I think um, it is too early to judge the, con- the, you know, the deep-rooted consequences of what cooperation in the Arctic will look like. One thing is sure is that this will completely affect Russia's agenda in the Arctic Council during their chairmanship. This will make any form of collaboration increasingly hard, uh, specifically when it comes to uh, trying to bridge positions, because we have we have clearly now a huge rift between Russia and the other nations. Very um, opposite positions in a way. And this will affect day-to-day management, uh, specifically when it comes to, in a way, uh, achieving minimal goals, right? The the potential uh, goals that we had in achieving better security, better search and rescue goals, or even trying to build positive things around ocean science, for instance, will always be seen through the lens of the war in Ukraine, Russia's war against Ukraine. And this is this is something that I think is going to erode uh, low tension in this this environment over time. On top of that, if we if we you know if we if we don't fight against the, these bad narratives, and I'm mentioning for instance all the, the Pompeo narratives in 2019 concerning big power competition and so on, although the, uh, the, there has been a change, of course, with the Biden administration, um, th- this will be increasingly hard to, uh, to, to, keep, to keep up with this form of narrative because we will be sort of taken over by the expediency of what we see now on the ground, which is a war uh, in, in Europe. So I, I think it's too early to know exactly what the consequences will be. But I'm afraid these will be very negative consequences to deal with. Um, and it, it'll be up to, in a way, to Norway uh, when they take over the chairmanship of the Arctic Council and, and the Coast Guards Forum in 23 to sort of renormalize the situation and take stock of what is the environment we have then in a year and a half and re- build from it uh, and sort of post you know post uh, post ukraine environment uh, where where the world would have changed and we will be living with the consequences of russia's war and and what do we where do we go from here in a way so plenty plenty to do
the next 18 months or so, it's really hard to imagine what the world's going to look like then after all we've been through for the past couple of years and the past couple of months and the past couple of days. Very fluid situation. And uh, we really appreciate, uh, Matthew, uh, you coming onto the podcast here to to share your expertise on these matters with us. And we really hope to stay in touch with you and uh, have you back on to uh, discuss this uh, evolving situation in uh, Ukraine and potential spillovers into the Arctic. Thank you very much. It was fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Matthew Buleg, Research Fellow in the Russia and Eurasian Program at Chatham House. Thank you very much for joining us here on the Polar Geopolitics Podcast. And we'll be back uh, with more episodes, certainly on this topic and as it relates to the Arctic and other aspects of polar geopolitics. My name is Eric Bagley in Stockholm. Thanks for listening.